You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. Happy Halloween, everyone. Today is October 31st, 2018. Make sure everyone stays safe tonight on Halloween. Wear your reflective gear. Uh, also, Halloween candy tips. Uh, Dr. Paul Herkel on his Instagram feed. Um, when was that? That was this morning, I think, or last night. Uh, he posted about um, kind of healthier healthier alternatives for, for candy and treats. And if you haven't seen that, check out at Dr. Paul Herkel on Instagram. And also on that note, if you haven't seen our interview last week with Dr. Herkel, uh, it was a phenomenal interview. It was about an hour long, so you can check that out on uh, Apple iTunes on, on podcast, uh, SoundCloud, or you could also see it on the Complete Concussions um YouTube YouTube page. All right, so three topics for today. Uh, two of them are questions, and one is a study of the week. And uh, so the first question is regarding neuroimaging following concussion, MRI, CT scans, etc. And what is the role of functional imaging? We'll get into that. And then also kind of more of a general question of what do we currently know about CTE? Can it happen from just one hit? And then talking also about what about sub-concussive impacts, so hits that don't necessarily cause concussion, but just repetitive hits over time. Can that lead to CTE? So, um, and then we're going to also have a study of the week, which is brought to you by yours truly. Uh, This is a study that we did with Complete Concussion Management and uh, our database, and it is concerning a physical exertion test utilized for return to play in high-risk athletes. And I'm going to talk about that study that was just published uh, two days ago in the journal Physician and Sports Medicine. All right, first question. Normal neuroimaging usually comes back clean. So talking about just structural neuroimaging, MRI, CT scans. What about functional MRI? Are they useful now? Could they help with treatment or rehabilitation? Now, there's fMRI, which um, you can do a resting state fMRI, which looks at uh, activity within the brain. You can also do an act, uh, a, a action-based fMRI, where you're actually doing some sort of activity, uh, some sort of um, um, neurocognitive task while in the MRI machine and it'll look at the activity within your brain while doing a cognitive task. And so you can do both types of fMRI uh, and typically what fMRI looks at is uh, oxygen uptake in cellular tissue uh, within the brain. So based on that it can see which areas of the brain are most active during during certain times and they can look at the patterning of the activation of those areas and try to see if this is different in concussed versus non-concussed or different you know uh, pre-injury versus post-injury or all sorts of other ways that you could you could utilize this potentially the problem that we have with structural imaging techniques like FM, like MRI or CAT scan or CT scan is that it looks at the structure of the brain. Following concussion, there is no change in the structure of the brain. And so this is why imaging comes back normal. Concussion is a functional injury, meaning that it changes how the brain functions, but doesn't change the structure of the brain. If there are structural abnormalities, which 
would be found on MRI or CT scan, this would indicate that the brain injury is actually more severe than a concussion. So you're getting into subdural hematomas, you're getting into um, uh, mo moderate and severe forms of brain injury versus mild traumatic brain injury, which is concussion, which doesn't have any of that stuff. So the idea behind functional MRI is to look at the brain function. And an, a standard fMRI will look at, like I said, oxygen uptake in um, different areas of the brain. And based on that, you can look at patterning. There are other types of functional imaging technologies uh, such as diffusion tensor scanning, um, PET scanning, um, magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and some other ones like that. I'll stick to fMRI uh, for today's talk. We can talk about the other ones in, in the future. Now, the problem with fMRI, okay, it looks at the function of the brain. The problem with it is that brain function can be affected or changed for a variety of reasons. For example, they have found similar patterns of fMRI uh, findings in patients that don't have concussions but have other injuries. So maybe the findings that we see on fMRI are due to pain responses or just injury in general or anxiety. So people with anxiety have similar fMRI findings as patients with concussion. And so if the findings are not specific to concussion necessarily, but it could represent or be very similar to other conditions, does a patient that's complaining of mental fogginess, headaches, uh, very, you know, concussion-like symptoms, if we find stuff on fMRI, does that necessarily confirm that they've had a concussion? Not yet, because fMRI, the same or similar type findings can be found in people with anxiety, depression, MSK injuries, other types of, of chronic pain disorders, uh, etc. So for example, even on DTI, so I guess I will go into DTI a little bit, diffusion tensor imaging, they found that patients with low socioeconomic status show similar findings on diffusion tensor as patients with concussion. So because there are so many unknowns as to really what we're looking at, we need to do more in comparing different groups with different pathologies or different known diagnoses to try and separate them to know what exactly we're looking at. Because all these studies that come out on fMRI will say, yes, we found differences between healthy control populations and concussed patients on fMRI. Now, the average person reading that study is going to go, oh, there it is. Why don't we just fMRI everyone? The more astute researchers will compare healthy control to a orthopedically injured person, meaning some sort of MSK injury, to a concussion group, to a group with anxiety and a group with depression, and then look at the difference between them. And what they'll generally find in these types of studies, which are a little bit more robust, is that the groups that have... MSK injury, depression, anxiety, concussion, all look very similar, but they're all different from the healthy control. So that becomes the major issue that we have to overcome is we can't be comparing concussed patients to healthy control and thinking that we're going to figure anything out. We need to be comparing concussed patients to orthopedic injuries, to people with uh, generalized anxiety disorders and other, uh, other types of, of 
injuries, mental health, chronic pain, all that stuff because the findings will be similar. So at this point in time, fMRI, in my opinion, doesn't really lend itself to any type of clinical interpretation because it still doesn't solve the problem as to what is causing this person's symptoms. Is this an anxiety disorder? Is this a psychological issue? Is this a uh, is this a blood flow abnormality? Is this a is this a neck injury? Is this whatever? We don't know. So that is my answer for that one. Okay. Another question came in on Facebook. CTE. What do we know about it? What do we not know? Can it happen from just one hit? And then what about subconcussive impacts? Now. In the complete concussion course, I give a lecture on this that's about two hours long, so uh, I'm gonna have to really give the Coles Notes versions on this. CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is a neurodegenerative condition that is believed to be, not confirmed to be, believed to be related to concussions and or repetitive head trauma. So it's been both ways. Uh, it started out as just concussions. They thought it was leading to CTE, but what happened was the researchers who were leading this um, research at the University of Boston found they had some people that were donated as controls that never had any concussions in their history, but they had a history of playing contact sports and they found CTE in those brains. So then they thought, well, maybe it's not just concussions. Maybe it's repetitive head trauma. And in my opinion, there's a lot more maybes that should be added to that list. Maybe it's pain-killing medication. Maybe it's a normal process of life. We don't have very many control brains. So that's one of the major concerns with CTE is that we don't know enough about regular humans, regular life, um, as to whether or not this is something and how common it is found in the general um population. So it's believed to be due to head trauma, but there have been cases where they found CTE in the absence of head trauma. So now that calls into question the entire idea behind it being related to head trauma. So, so far, CTE and its relationship to concussions and or subconcussive impacts is purely 100% theoretical. I'm not saying that it's not the case. It may very well be the case, but we still have to prove that, and I think that's going to take some time to do. Now, what they find inside the brain is a protein called tau protein, and it's it's a hyperphosphorylated form of tau protein. Tau is occurs normally inside uh, nerve tissue, and it's a it's it helps with the support structure of the cell. Now, upon injury to nerve tissue, that tau can accumulate, aggregate, and become these hyperphosphorylated um, little globules called tau protein deposits. So, it injury to nerve tissue can be a catalyst for tau deposition. So, the theory makes sense, but so can things like chronic inflammation, so can things like um, opioid medications. So opiates are known to increase the risk of having tau deposition. Now how many former professional athletes or current professional athletes are taking painkillers on a regular basis? 
So then at the end of their career, at the end of their life, we find tau protein in the brain. How do we know that it's not due to years of utilizing opioids? There was a study done looking at former NFL players and they found that in former NFL players, 70% of them admitted to using opiate medications on a regular basis during their playing careers and more than half of them identified, self-identified themselves as being abusers of opioid medications. So how do we know it's not that? Well, we don't. We need more research to continue to be done. Um, there's, there's potentially cognitive impairments, memory impairments, and other things that go that people are reporting are happening to them. Yet in a number of studies, and I've talked about this before, in a number of studies, and there was just a big one done in Buffalo, and they looked at all these different measures. They looked at imaging. They looked at cognitive tests. They looked at uh, physical testing, like balance and reaction time and that type of stuff, and they found that the group that had a history of concussions and, and played in the NHL and NFL that were actually reporting, they came in saying, yes, I have cognitive impairments. Yes, I don't feel right. There's something wrong with me. And then they compared them to a group of former um, swimmers and cyclists and non-contact athletes and they found that there was absolutely no difference between the groups in terms of their cognitive function, their imaging findings, their anything. The only difference was that the group that was the former NFL and NHL players had higher anxiety and they had a higher belief that they were impaired. So how much of that is driven by the media hype of the media basically convincing the entire world that concussions lead to you know long-term neurodegenerative conditions um, and even sports like football can lead to long-term neurodegenerative conditions and how much of that now plays into the psyche of former athletes that think holy shit I played football I played hockey I don't quite feel right and then it starts becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy and then you know, there's there's so many variables in this right now. We just don't know enough about it. Um, you know, I could probably ramble on all day about this, but generally at this point in time, can it happen from one hit? Highly, highly unlikely, although theoretically we don't know. Could be possible. It may not even be due to hits, so we don't know. Um, and then what about subconcussive impacts? In my opinion, if head trauma is related to um, CTE or a causal factor of CTE. Uh, I believe there to be some sort of threshold um, and I don't know this to be true. This is just purely a theory based on my uh, opinion and I kind of think about it this way is, you know, if I'm to hit myself in the arm like this repeatedly, is my arm eventually just going to break? Probably not. Okay, it'll get annoying after a while but I don't think I'm actually going to break my arm. Now, if I started really hammering my arm, maybe I could lead to some cellular damage around that, maybe some remodeling, some restructuring of you know the muscle tissue and bone tissue as a result of that trauma. And if I really smash it, my arm will break. So there's this, this continuum, I believe, and I believe the same thing to be due, uh, in, I believe there to be the same issue with concussion, is at, low, low impact magnitudes, like let's say heading a soccer ball, um, is that enough to result in any type of cellular remodeling or any type of subclinical threshold trauma? 
uh, in my opinion, likely not, but we don't know. Then when you get into more forceful impacts, like let's say um, like a boxing fight where you're getting punched in the face a bunch of times, the force is a little bit stronger. Is that leading to damage? Possibly. And then you get into the concussion level where you actually affect cellular change, potentially creating microstructural damage, potentially creating, you know, that is kind of a continuum of injury severity, subconcussive to whatever. So I don't know. But I just I feel that that makes logical sense to me in terms of the impact magnitudes. So I would say that if you've had one concussion before, it would be very, very highly unlikely that you would develop CTE. If you've had a number of concussions before, uh, there's so many questions that I would have to ask you, such as, you know, how many? Uh, not that it would it would necessarily matter how many, but how close together? were those injuries so there's some evidence to show that the it's not necessarily the number of concussions you get but how close together they are what type of recovery you had between each one uh, I would want to know kind of like last week what's your diet right so one of the leading theories on this is that the injuries themselves lead to an inflammatory response in the brain activation of microglia and that activation of microglia now in some other stuff we've been looking at can impair um, uh, gut permeability and make it more permeable, which then leads to greater inflammatory processes that continue that catalyst, that cascade, and then you get this chronic inflammatory uh, type of thing. So how much of CTE is due to not only the presence of head trauma, but then head trauma followed by uh, a high inflammatory diet, uh, alcohol and drugs um, and other things that keep this inflammatory cycle going and keep the cascade of brain degeneration happening, right? So there, I think there's a lot of things that go into somebody's life that can potentially lead to a neurodegenerative condition. Head trauma may be one, but we don't know. We need a lot more evidence on this. I think that the media has done us all a disservice by perpetuating this idea without having all the results and has now created this fear propagation that leads to the anxiety that leads to the same symptoms that somebody with CTE would experience. And so now it becomes very cloudy to figure out, do I just have a generalized anxiety disorder or do I actually have some sort of impairment that's caused by this, right? So uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out there. Okay, study of the week, last but not least, the use of an intensive physical exertion test as a final return to play measure in concussed athletes, a pro prospective cohort, the author, Dr. Cameron Marshall, your concussion doc. Uh, this is actually the first publication that we've had come out of the Complete Concussion Management System. So for those that don't know, Complete Concussion Management is a network of clinics uh, now with somewhat a global present, at least in the English-speaking markets. We have clinics in Canada, the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And we're all connected. All of those clinics are trained by us. They go through our training protocol. They come into our network. Uh, and we work together with them uh, to help not only develop their concussion management program, but if they already have one in place to help them strengthen that concussion management program by providing them evidence-based protocols and things like that, as well as the tools to be able to effectively implement a concussion management program. And one of those tools is a complete concussion management concussion database system. 
all of the injury data and all of the baseline data that we do at all of those clinics get stored in that particular system. It also connects then with a smartphone app on the sidelines so that uh, uh, trainers on the sidelines, coaches on the sidelines can actually report an injury directly to a complete concussion management certified clinic which kickstarts the process which gets an athlete in right away and now there's a communication line between healthcare professional, athlete, teacher, coach everybody because we're all connected through this digital platform which keeps everything together it keeps the messaging consistent and it lets everybody know what their role and responsibility is with a particular concussed athlete all of that information also then is stored on the cloud and it creates an anonymized database which is actually right now probably one of if not the largest concussion database in the world which then allows us to do some pretty big studies and so this study here actually we only did it between um, we did it for basically like 12 months or so and there was about 800 athletes that we included in this study and this study is on the Chicago Blackhawks test which is a final return to play measure that was developed by uh, Paul Goodman and Mike Gapsky who are um, on the medical staff of the Chicago Blackhawks NHL franchise and um, through a connection we got to know each other they gave us this test and we've been using it at all complete concussion management clinics for the past probably three or four years and Last year, in partnership with McMaster University here in Canada, we analyzed the data that came in from the Chicago Blackhawks test, or what it's known as in this paper is the Gapsky-Goodman test, named after uh, the people who, who invented it. And so, uh, long story short, the, um, actually I don't know how short it will be, but long story short anyway, um, the return to play process for complete concussion management is that we go through kind of your typical like 24 to 48 hours of rest, then we get into a return to learn, return to work process. Once they've done that, we put them on the treadmill, we run them through the Buffalo concussion treadmill test, then we have them go back and kind of follow the Berlin return to play, which is having at least two non-contact practices. Once they've completed those two non-contact practices, we bring them back in and it's the medical clearance stage. The big knock that I have on Berlin right now and kind of the concussion world is we don't really have any type of standardized approach to what constitutes medical clearance. Right now it's typically done by a physician in, a, in an office in a rested state when the athlete has under no stress whatsoever and it just, how do you feel? I feel fine. Your symptoms are gone? Yep. Okay. I sign your letter and you go back to play. Knowing that concussion symptoms can be aggravated by physical exertion, right? Just letting somebody go and practice on their own, I don't feel is enough and we don't feel is enough because they're going to self-select their exercise intensity, right? If they're feeling a little bit of a headache, they're going to slow down a little bit. They're not going to push themselves and they're probably not going to tell you about the headache they had because they want to get back on the ice or on the field. So the Chicago Blackhawks test or the Gapsky Goodman test is great for this. And what it is, is a, um, uh, you, you can read it if you get the article. I put the whole protocol on there. It's a bike test, uh, which is heart rate up, heart rate down, heart rate up, heart rate down to mimic a dynamic sporting environment. And then it's followed by plyometrics. And so you're doing things like burpees and jumping rotations and all sorts of stuff to challenge the visual and vestibular systems to really um, make sure that an athlete is ready to return to play. And so we do this, it takes about half an hour, we run them through this test, it's a standardized test, all the data gets stored on our system. 
If they pass that test, we then take them and run them through all of their baseline testing um, uh, protocols um, in an exerted state because that adds to the sensitivity of the protocol. If they pass that, then we clear them for full contact practice followed by full game play. Okay. Now, here's the results of this study. We had 759 athletes. Uh, the mean age was 15.5 years. The range of ages was 13 to 25 years old. 40% uh, were female, 60% were male. The most common mechanism of injury was hockey, uh, which was about 44% being in Canada. Uh, most of the data uh, was, was hockey players. Football was 11%, soccer was 10%, rugby was 6%, basketball was 6% uh, as well. And of these athletes, now keep in mind, when they do this test, they're completely asymptomatic at rest, asymptomatic at school, asymptomatic on the Buffalo treadmill test, asymptomatic through two non-contact practices, and finally they get to us. And we run them through this test, and what we found was that 15% of athletes actually failed this test, potentially indicating an incomplete recovery. And we didn't actually publish this, but looking at people with baseline test data, we found that another 30% went on to fail some element of their baseline test. So all in all, having some sort of rigorous protocol in place as that medical clearance stage, which I believe that should become standard of practice across the board, we're actually able to hold back about 40% of people from returning to sport potentially too early and putting themselves at risk for subsequent injuries, right? It's not necessarily the number of concussions you get, but how close together they are. This is, a, this is the best thing you could do is to try and delay that recovery as best you can and put some sort of objective testing in place uh, to be able to do that. Now, some limitations to this study. I want to preference that. This, this study has not been validated. We don't really know what we're looking at. Even though people fail it, and by failure means they report an increase in their symptoms um, that they didn't have before based on when they're doing it, we don't really know why that is. And what we found was that people that had pre-existing anxiety were more likely to report symptoms. So does anxiety play into um, symptom presentation? We also found that people that had more severe injuries, um, such as people coming in with a higher symptom scale, which is known as an injury severity um, marker, they were more likely to fail as well. So maybe that indicates the injury was more severe and in fact is now taking them longer to recover and that's why they failed. Um, so there's some issues. We also found that people that played kind of non-cardiovascularly demanding sports like baseball, they were more likely to fail than people that played sports like hockey or football and that might be due to just um, not being as cardiovascular fit. So when you're doing an exercise that's rigorous and maybe you've been off sports for three weeks and now you're doing this test, maybe you're out of shape and you start to become symptomatic like dizziness, headaches and things like that. So I think we still have to flush some things out, uh, but this is encouraging news to say the least that we're potentially holding back 15% of people that are returning to sport too soon. So if you are not using some sort of physical exertion test as the final return to play measure uh, in your clinical management, um, I think you should really strongly consider adding that piece uh, to the puzzle. Um, it's just one more check. It protects you a little bit more from liability and it helps uh, athletes from returning too soon and putting themselves at risk uh, for further concussions. That's it for today. Uh, went on quite a bit and um, we'll see you guys. See you guys next week. Cheers. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, 
please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.